0: Good morning. The passage today is Luke 13, verses 22 through 30. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able. Once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught us, taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last.
1: Thanks, Elisa. Morning, Uh, my name is Frank, Um, I'm one of the elders here. Um, Great to see you. Um, hope you're doing well, enjoying the, uh, well, the weather was good when I drove in here about 7 a.m., but maybe not so good now. Um, so yeah, um, let me just quickly pray uh, pray before we dive in um, to this passage that's uh, just been read for us. Um, Lord, thank you um, for this day. Uh, thank you so much for the joy it is to gather here, the joy it is to unite under, um, under you, um, to Declare um, our love for you. Declare our faith in you. And I just pray, Lord, that You'd soften our hearts and that You would help us um, as we unpack this text together today. Um, help us to have a deeper and a more beautiful um, understanding of You. As a result, in Your name, Amen. So the the passage for today has just been read. is basically Jesus' answer to a question, specifically a question about salvation. Someone in the crowd calls out and basically asks Jesus how many people are gonna be saved. Now, my wife, Debs, who some of you might know, um, very, 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 very smart person, uh, a lot smarter than I am. Uh, and when we were discussing um, my sermon for today, she was saying, you've always got to ask, if there's a question, you've always got to ask, what's the question behind the question? And I think that was a really wise piece of advice. So let's ask ourselves that question. Why is this person coming with this question to Jesus? What's the question behind the question? In order to answer that, we've got to zoom out a little bit and just quickly remind ourselves of the context of where we are in the book of Luke. So right now, in this kind of section that we're in, in Luke, it's part of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And Jesus doesn't appear to be any, in any kind of hurry. He's kind of meandering his way through the towns and through the villages and taking lots of opportunities to stop and to teach people and to heal people along the way. The texts that we've covered over the last six to eight weeks have contained some particularly challenging uh, teaching from Jesus because he said a lot of things about salvation and about judgment. Jesus has also said some things in the last few weeks as we've been been looking through these past few verses that humiliated the religious elite. The Pharisees, the leader of the synagogue. He said a lot of stuff which really kind of put them in their place and kind of knocked them down a few few pegs. So salvation and judgment, Jesus' teaching, humiliating the, the religious elite That sets the tone for this question and it gives us an idea as to why this person comes to Jesus and says, are only a few going to be saved? See, if the religious leaders aren't in or they're kind of on shaky ground, then who's going to be in, right? If Jesus is challenging them, then it's a logical question to say, well, maybe it's only going to be a small number of people that are going to be saved. Now let's take a look at Jesus' answer to this question. Jesus' response to this person's question on first glance is a little bit cryptic, which is kind of typical of Jesus. He says this, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. See, the person's question was about everybody out there it was a general question about who's going to be saved here and Jesus responds by making it personal he looks at this guy and he says you make every effort to enter through the narrow door when it comes to who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved the lesson we can learn here is that Jesus won't give us an answer to that question He's not gonna tell you if your brother or your sister or your colleague or your neighbor is gonna be saved. Instead, he looks at you and he says, what are you gonna do with me? What are you gonna do with the gospel? How is your heart before almighty God, says Jesus. Then Jesus goes on to use this image of a narrow door to teach about how people enter the kingdom of God. And he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Now, upon first glance, Jesus' words, they sound like they're the opposite of the biblical definition of salvation, right? We literally just sang it on the screen. We're saved by faith, we're saved by grace. Romans 3, 21 to 24 says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So according to Paul, according to the other biblical writers, salvation is freely gifted to us in Christ. So When Jesus says make every effort, he isn't talking about making an effort that's contributing to our salvation, because that would contradict so much of biblical teaching and so much of Jesus' own teaching. God in his grace and mercy does all the work required for our salvation. We do not bring anything to the table. So if the effort that Jesus speaks of isn't some kind of contribution to our salvation, then what is he speaking of? Well, the Greek word, which is translated into effort here in our Bibles, means agony. And if you pause to think about it, in order to be saved, we do have to strive and struggle because salvation requires us to be humbled. We have to humbly admit that we have failed in every possible way to love God and to love others. I don't know about you, but humility does not come naturally to me. It is an effort for me to come humbly to God. Recently, my wife Debs and I went with Jake and Alexa to an escape room, and it was a really fun night. I really enjoyed it, and we kind of got pretty into it. We were like, we were desperate to crack the puzzles and, and get back out of the room. We were like kind of working ourselves up into a bit of a kind of frenzy to try and, to try and get it done, you know, and there was this amazing moment. This was worth every, every last dollar that I paid was worth it for this one thing that happened. It was towards the back end. We didn't have very long left to go, and we cracked this puzzle, and this thing that looked like a, a brick wall just slid up and it was this little kind of small door into like another room. And I just remember like the, this, this, like the rush of like excitement and, and dopamine that just you know, hit me in that moment. It was, honestly, it was incredible. And I went straight down there, bang, hands and knees, crawled in to this next room, okay? Now, Jake is quite a lot taller than I am. And he was recovering from a bad back at the time. But Jake got down on all fours and he crawled in as well into this other room. It was worth it for Jake. He he desperately wanted to find out what was on the other side of this door, so he got down. He went through the pain and he went through. This, This painful crawling... Honestly, I think it's a good mental image of what Jesus is talking about here. Because to enter through the narrow door, we have to accept that we need a savior, which for prideful humanity is agony. Just like an Olympic athlete must undergo agonizing physical training to condition their bodies, spiritually speaking, we must commit ourselves to the agonizing work of cultivating a spirit of humility, which is not the natural inclination of the human heart. Make no mistake, none of our efforts cause us to be saved. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But taking hold of our salvation requires effort, as we must come to God humbly, asking for his forgiveness. The glory of the gospel is that when we do come to God like this, he does open the door for us. Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross so that we can be pardoned. And then he rose again so that we can have the hope of eternal life. God does all the work of salvation for us. But according to Jesus, we must make the effort to come to him, broken and humbled, and asking him to save us and open the door for us. So, we've considered what Jesus means by make every effort. Now, let's go a little bit deeper into what he means by the narrow door. Firstly, where does the door lead? Verse 29 gives us an answer. Jesus says, The door leads into the kingdom of God, the banquet that is heaven. In John 14, heaven is described as a huge mansion, God's house, in which there are many rooms. And later, in Luke 14, the kingdom of God is described as a feast to which God invites many guests. Given then that heaven is such a spacious place, why is the door into it so narrow? Now there are, po- there, there are a few different possible interpretations for what Jesus means by narrow here. And here are, here are the two that I think are the most compelling. First, the door is narrow because it only lets one person through it at a time. Now, if you're a sports fan, you will no doubt have been through a turnstile at some point or or another. On the way into the stadium, you get this big metal kind of great thing, and you step into it, push, and then you go through, boom, and then into the stadium you go. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried this but it's impossible to fit two people in, in that one compartment. And if you tried to step in with someone else, it is not gonna end well. If you're not a sports fan and you've never seen a turnstile, hopefully you'll have seen the scanner at an airport, right? Where you take all of your valuables out one by one, you go into the scanner, you do this, and then you wait for the approval so you can keep going. Those two illustrations, I think, make the point that salvation is personal. See, that person's question about who's going to be saved, as I was saying, it was a general question. Then Jesus made it a personal thing in his response. See, Jesus will only deal with us on our own, one-to-one, personally. Personally. We have to come to him on our own. We cannot take anything else in with us. We can't take anyone else in with us. Salvation is a very personal and a very intimate thing. Another angle of interpretation that I think is probably closest to what Jesus was intended to mean in his description of the narrowness is that that he is the only way that there's only one way to God. In John 14, 6, Jesus makes this earth-shattering claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes an exclusive claim to truth. He alone speaks truthfully about how to get to God and how to be saved. Not only that, In John 10, verse nine, Jesus says, I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Do you see the similarity here between the narrow door and what Jesus has just said there in John nine? Jesus is saying that he is the door. Jesus is saying, He's the only way to God, and that if anyone wants to come to God, there's only one way to do so, and that is through Jesus. See, this makes sense of the statement that Jesus makes in the second half of verse 24, when he says, many will try and enter, but won't be able. See, the world is full of different ideas about how to get to God, with many claiming that they know the door that leads to God. And some go further and claim that all the major religions lead to the same God. This widespread assumption that everybody's claim to God can be equally true is brilliantly captured in an ancient parable um, from the country of India about a a group of blind men and an elephant. So picture with me, you've got an elephant and you've got a group of blind men and each of them is interacting with a certain part of the elephant, okay? So you've got one, one guy's got his hand against the side of the elephant, and he says, this thing is, is like a wall. And then you've got a guy at the other end, he's grabbing the tail, and he's like, no, 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 this thing is like a rope. And then you've got another guy, and he's holding onto the leg, and he's like, no, 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 It's a tree. And then they start to argue because of their conflicting descriptions of the elephant. But the moral of the story is supposed to be that everybody comes to truth in a subjective way, in a limited way. And so we need to respect other people's subjective, limited view and accept that Collectively, we all have the right idea, but just in a slightly different way. Now, this parable, it kind of sums up the postmodern approach to truth claims, doesn't it? To the postmodern mind, there are multiple doors that one can choose from, and God can be reached in a multitude of different ways. Not so, says Jesus. He teaches that the door is narrow, And then he goes further and says that he is the door and the only true way to God. The door is narrow, says Jesus, because only one door is needed. See, the world pours scorn on such narrowness. People are offended by Jesus' exclusive claims to truth. To many, it comes off as arrogant and exclusive which explains why so many people reject Jesus when they hear him teach about the narrow door. But it is a mistake to think that just because the door is narrow, the kingdom of God isn't diverse. And I love this. This, this, this really hit me um, very hard, I think, when I was preparing for this. Uh, verse 29, they will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. (laughs) That is just such a beautiful truth, isn't it? Jesus is saying, look, heaven will be the most ethnically, socially, economically, and politically diverse banquet that has ever been seen. And the radical diversity that we see here, it's made possible precisely because of the narrowness of the door. I don't know about you, but I've been in Christian circles, Christian um, small groups and so on, where in like an earthly sense, I have very, very little in common with the rest of the people in the room. And I think to myself, there's probably like no way in like normal life that I would ever um, have anything really to do with these people, like in, in in, in the sense that we'd be like all in the same room, friends, sharing a meal and so on. But there's something beautiful about the christian gospel is you can sit in a room like that where there's not not maybe not necessarily anything uh, that you have earthly in common but you've all gone through the same door <laughs> you've all said to jesus i need a, i need you to save me i need you to renew me i need you to fill me with your holy spirit i need you to do a saving work of grace and that is what then unites you in that room and i I just think that's such a wonderful thing, and isn't it just such a beautiful picture that heaven is described as a banquet? <laughs> I, um, I really love food, and um, any excuse um, to, to eat, um, I'll find an excuse. Uh, it's why I love what I do for work, I'm a landscaper for work, so I'm routinely moving a lot of dirt and a lot of like, rocks and that sort of stuff, which means I can then go home and eat my wife's cooking, which is uh, also incredible as well. Um, So yeah, like heaven as a banquet. How can we then, how can we in a small way image this as a church? Well, obviously we have our potlucks every Sunday where we get a chance to eat together after the service. Um, And we want to put a really strong focus um, in MCs, missional communities, that's our small groups here as a church, on eating as well, on sharing the table, on sharing food together. And I think it's a a beautiful picture of what the church can be and what the church is going to be when we're perfected and we're made new. We're we're gonna sit around a banqueting table and it's gonna be a beautiful, diverse, incredible picture of what the kingdom of God is like. So (laughs) we can be a witness by eating food together. Isn't Isn't that amazing? Breaking bread, praying with one another, And we need to celebrate as much as we possibly can the diversity um, that's in the room, but also the similarity that we have, the, um, the fact that we all went through that same door together. Okay, so we've unpacked the narrowness of the door. Next, Jesus goes on and says that this door will be closed. He says this, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try and enter and will not be able to. After the master of the house gets up and shuts the door, you will stand outside knocking and say, Lord, open the door to us. But he will reply, I do not know where you are from. See, we can all relate to this illustration, right? It's a quite a simple illustration. Um, if you own a house or you rent a house, you know that like before you go to bed, The wise thing to do is to just double check that you've locked all the doors and all the windows and so on. To not do that would be foolish and would be leaving your house open to burglary. Jesus is saying, in the same way that we do that, one day, God will shut the door. He will rise and shut the door to salvation. See, currently, we find ourselves in the day of salvation, where anyone who calls in the name of the law will be saved. The door to the kingdom, though narrow, is open to anyone who will humble themselves and accept that they need to be rescued by Jesus. But there will come a day, says Jesus, where the time of God's grace and patience will end. The day of salvation will end and God will forever close the door to his house. To be clear, Jesus is talking about a time when he will return to earth and usher in the great day of reckoning where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will one by one appear before the throne of Almighty God, 2 Corinthians 5.10. The moment when Jesus comes again, as we learn in Luke 12, 35 to 48, is something that the Bible gives no answer to. Jesus says in Luke 12, 39, that his coming will be like a thief in the night, by which he means it'll happen when we aren't expecting it. The meaning of this is clear. If the door is going to shut forever with, with such grave consequences, at a time we least expect it, the wise move is to make every effort to enter through the narrow door while there is still time. This is another loving warning from Jesus. He is saying, don't hang around. Have some urgency. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Not only does Jesus warn the people that there'll come a time when the door is closed forever, he then foresees their indignation at being left out. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Behind the statement is an assumption that being around the activities of God is the same as having a relationship with him through faith in Christ. Given that Jesus was talking to Jewish people, they likely thought that they were guaranteed a seat in the kingdom of God. They could point to the fact that they belonged to God's special nation. They could tell of a rich history of witnessing incredible acts of power and deliverance from God. And they could trace their lineage back to the heroes of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not only that, they were fortunate enough to live in the time of Jesus. Out of all the human beings who have ever lived, they had the immense privilege of eating with Jesus and sitting under his teaching. But even in light of all that they thought they had, Jesus says, all that means nothing unless you actually enter through the narrow door. See, the people thought that just because they were around the ministry of Jesus, that that would automatically mean that they would make it into the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, that is not enough. Jesus is only concerned with whether or not we have personally humbly approached him in faith. Salvation is impossible unless you are prepared to do business with Jesus one-to-one. If we attend a church, give to Christian charities, or come from a Christian family, if we went to a Christian school, or we work for a Christian company, or even if we live in a so-called Christian country, When it comes to salvation, none of it matters. All that matters is whether we know Jesus in a saving sense. Do you see the response that God gives to those who never actually entered through the narrow door in verse 27? I don't know you or where you're from. I don't know you. God says that, to those who have never made the effort to enter through the narrow door, to those who thought that they would be saved simply by being associated with God's activity. I can only imagine how terrible a thing that must be to hear. I don't know you from the lips of almighty God. We mustn't confuse this with God's general knowledge of us. God knows everything about everyone but it's possible to be unknown to God in a saving sense. If we do not make every effort to enter through the narrow door, if we never acknowledge that Jesus' death and resurrection both cleanses us from sin and secures our eternal life, and if we fail to pursue a deep personal relationship with God based upon his endless grace and fatherly affection towards us, then one day we will hear those most terrifying words. I don't know you or where you are from. Friends, we must get personal with God. We have to realize that no matter how much we've been around the things of God, the only thing that really matters is if we make the effort to personally know God. Jesus goes on to describe the consequences of failing to enter through the narrow door. Luke thirteen, twenty six to 30 says, Then you will say, we ate, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evil doers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west, from north and south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Now, the way that the different texts have fallen to the different preachers uh, means that um, the first sermon that I preached as an elder, I had to talk about hell. And then this passage today also uh, means that I have to talk about hell as well. And obviously, hell is a, a, a painful a painful doctrine, and it's, it's something that I don't want to, you know, come too lightly at all. Um, yeah, I've struggled struggled personally with, with this teaching a lot in the past, and, yeah, I just wanted to sort of understand that uh, it lands differently with different people depending on, the you know, the lives that people have had, so... Uh, But it it does, this passage does require me to touch on it. Um, And here's something that I said in my sermon a few weeks ago that I think is worth saying again. Um, And that is that Jesus himself talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. And the vast majority of the teaching in the New Testament comes from the mouth of Jesus. Which has led some to speculate that God arranged it that way. Because we wouldn't accept the doctrine of hell from anyone other than Jesus himself. So what can we learn here? Well, hell produces both sorrow and anger. Jesus says that there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who find themselves outside the kingdom of God. It appears that there'll be some who are deeply sorrowful over their future, their failure, sorry, to enter through the narrow door. And some who are so angry and indignant that they find themselves outside the kingdom of God, but they gnash their teeth at God, which is a physical sign of explosive rage. This sorrow and anger intensifies as they see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here? Well, we must remember that Jesus is talking to Jewish people who had a deeply ingrained assumption that they would sit with their forefathers and the heroes of faith in the kingdom of God. And it had never occurred to them that they might be left out. As we've touched on, Jesus goes on to mention that people will come from from the east and west and north and south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. And this is another shock to the original hearers. See, they were convinced that because they were Israelites, that they were guaranteed a seat at the banqueting table. First, Jesus says if they fail to enter through the narrow door, that they will be shut out only to see their heroes let in. And then Jesus goes further and says that the non-Jewish people, known as Gentiles, will come from all over the planet to, to take a seat next to the heroes of the Jewish faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus' words are a foretaste of what we read about in Romans chapter 11, where Paul uses the image of an olive tree, with some branches being cut off and other branches being grafted in to communicate the the dynamic between Israel and the Gentiles. You see, God's primary goal in choosing Israel was that they would be a light to the nations and show the other nations how beautiful it is to know God. The high point of Israel's faithfulness in this call to display God's glory to a watching world is found in 1 Kings 10, where the Queen of Sheba hears about Solomon's devotion to God and about his kingdom, and so she pays a visit to see it all for herself. And we read in 1 Kings 10 verse 9 that the beauty of it, that the beauty of a worshiping community of Israel took her breath away. Now sadly, from this high point, the nation of Israel went downhill. Though there were smaller glimpses of Israel shining brightly to the surrounding nations, they began to fall further and further short of God's command to bless the nations. Then, in the life of Jesus, we see that he fulfills the true calling of Israel. Just like the nation of Israel were called out of slavery in Egypt, Jesus and his parents fled to Egypt when Jesus was still a baby to escape King Herod, who sought to kill Jesus. And then God brought them out of Egypt which fulfilled God's promise in Hosea 11 that out of Egypt I would call my son. Matthew 2.15 interprets this as proof that Jesus will grow up to be the true Israel. See, in his unwavering obedience to God, Jesus was found faithful where Israel failed. Jesus stood as a light on a hill so that everyone could see the glory of God and drawn into relationship with him. Jesus came both for Jewish people and for non-Jewish people. His promises are for men and women, old people and young people, rich people, poor people, homeless people, housed people. He offers salvation to every ethnic group from every background. To put it another way, when it comes to salvation, though the door is narrow, no one is left out. However, the people that Jesus speaks to, who see the nations brought in from the four corners of the globe in Luke thirteen twenty-eight, do not see that as a glorious thing. Quite the opposite. They see the Gentiles sitting next to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and they either weep or they gnash their teeth. See, many Israelites were appalled by Jesus' inclusion of the Gentiles. It was the chief reason that many of them turned away. They could not fathom how God's Messiah would open the door to anyone other than Israel. They saw the inclusive message of the gospel as scandalous as so many of them would watch as their heroes sat down to dinner with lowly Gentiles as they themselves stand on the outside stunned that they aren't taking those seats instead. The people in Jesus' parable are left out because they couldn't humble themselves enough to see that they desperately needed to be saved through the same narrow door as the Gentiles. And so they found themselves on the outside looking in. This astonishing idea that many Gentiles will be welcomed into the kingdom whilst many Israelites will find themselves thrust out is neatly summarized in Jesus' infamous words in verse 30. Note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. See, the nation of Israel were chosen first with a mandate to go and be a light to all the nations under the sun. From the beginning, God's pattern of salvation was to the Jewish people first, and then everyone else second. And then Jesus came and flipped it on its head. According to Jesus, Israel's stubbornness to receive him as the Messiah means that there is a possibility that those who are supposed to be at the front of the line for entry into the kingdom of God could end up at the back and worse still shut out forever. Jesus is challenging his Jewish hearers to rightly perceive that God was doing a new thing in Jesus. Jesus constantly challenged the religious establishment throughout his ministry And he is doing the same again here. He is challenging his hearers to accept the fact that salvation was being offered to all people with no special arrangements for the Jewish people. Jesus is saying, whether you're an Israelite or a Gentile, you must all come through the narrow door. So we've unpacked Jesus' teaching about the narrow door. And as we draw today's study, To a close, I wanted to make some closing comments about this text. Firstly, I wanted to address how does this text relate to the doctrine of salvation? See, taken on its own, this passage seems to affirm that no one will be saved unless they do the hard work of humbling themselves before God. Our text for today holds up man's responsibility in salvation. However, we must hold this text in balance with texts such as Ephesians 2, 1-5, which teaches that without God, we are all dead in sin. And as such, we are completely unable to respond to God and his love. God must graciously take the initiative to make us alive in him. A dead body is completely powerless to raise itself. See, in our Western kind of rationalistic thinking, we find it tricky to hold up both these truths at the same time. Because to us and our limited minds, they appear contradictory. And then the mistake is that we either lean heavily towards one side or we lean heavily towards the other side. I would say that I think we've got to try and resist this. We've got to humbly sit under what scripture says about salvation. And we've got to celebrate both truths without suppressing one side and becoming wonky in our doctrine. I once heard Tim Keller put it like this. The door to salvation has Luke 13 verse 24 written on it. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Then you go through the door and you turn around and you look at the back of the door and on the back of the door it says this, John six forty-four. no one can come to me unless the Father who draws me, sorry, the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So We must make every effort to be saved, but knowing that God is at work drawing us to himself, that none of us can come to him without a miraculous work. And we must hold both those two truths up and try not to suppress the one at the expense of the other. In my younger years, at this point in the conversation, I used to point to my two brothers who aren't followers of Jesus, and ask, why was it, Why is it that God has led me to himself and not them? What is God's answer? God's answer is the same answer that Jesus gave to the questioner in our passage today. God's not gonna tell me about Jonah, my brother, or George, my brother. Jesus looks at me and says, you make every effort to enter through the narrow door. If you're a Christian today, how do we kind of apply this text? Well, obviously, firstly, we can rejoice. I don't know about you, but the idea of a banquet in heaven is like that is cause to rejoice, personally. I, that makes me very excited. Um, and we can rejoice that it will be a diverse banquet. Um, that we'll see people from the four corners of the globe um, taking their seats. That's such a wonderful thing, and that should really fuel fuel our worship today as we kind of continue to sing uh, and praise him together for the rest of the service. And if you're not a Christian today, maybe this is an opportunity for you to think carefully about what Jesus is saying, about what it looks like to come to him. Maybe ask him to help you find that narrow door. Help him to reveal himself to you so that you can enter through that door and know the life of joy and love and peace that comes on the other side of that door. And as a church, I really feel like we need to press into um, fellowship together around the table um, that we can really go after what it looks like to have a diverse group of people eating together, praying together, asking each other deep questions, showing an interest in one another, loving one another. And I think that that is gonna be an incredible witness, um, a beautiful uh, beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is like in the here and now. Because we wanna be a blessing to the city of Seattle and beyond, right? We say that at the end of every service as our benediction. We wanna bless Seattle. And we want to bless the ends of the earth. And I think one way we can start to, well, continue, sorry, to do that uh, is by really investing in um, eating with one another and uh, inviting uh, a diverse, diverse group of people um, to, that, uh, to that table. So let's, um, yeah, let's, let's keep doing that together, um, keep pursuing those opportunities to be a light to the nations and a light to Seattle. Okay, so we're going um, to share communion now. Um, it's, again, um, a, ni- a nice uh, physical reminder of the fact that um, we will um, we'll enter into um, the kingdom of God through the body and blood of Jesus, that going through the narrow door means um, accepting that Jesus is, um, had his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. Um, and that's what we do as we, as we share communion. Um, the juice reminds us of Jesus' blood. Um, the wafer reminds us of Jesus' body. Um, and as you take it today in light of what we've um, been talking about, why not just give thanks in your heart that God has, God has opened up that narrow door of faith to you. Um, that God has made that door available through his body and blood. And that there's an invitation for you to just remind yourself of the, the way in which you came into the kingdom. Um, just in terms of um, the um, way we normally do it. So try and come down the middle or down this aisle and then come along, take communion and then peel back round that way. And that just means we're not kind of bumping, bumping into one another uh, in the aisles. Uh, and just lastly, just to say, um, communion uh, is uh, a meal for those who, uh, who do say that they're a Christian, who, people who do say that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. Um, so if you're not uh, a Christian here today, if you're a seeker, um, thank, uh, firstly, uh, so great to have you. Um, so great to have you among us. Um, but I would just um, yeah, gently say, uh, don't come and take communion if you haven't already made Jesus your Lord and Savior. And take that opportunity, uh, those few minutes as everyone um, does come up, uh, take that opportunity just to have a, a quiet moment uh, just contemplating all that we've um, looked at today together. So let me just voice a quick prayer as we do so and as we carry on uh, worshiping Christ together. Father, thank you so much that you've made a door available into your kingdom, um, a door uh, in which we, we have absolutely no right to enter through, um, through our own merit um, or any of our supposed good works. You've opened that door purely through your grace. You've made that door available by going to the cross, allowing your body to be broken and your blood to be shed. And now you call all people to make every effort to enter through the narrow door. So I thank you so much, Lord, for making salvation available. I praise you so much for that beautiful, beautiful truth. And I thank you for what's on the, on the other side of that door, Lord, that... One day we'll be with you in in the banquet. Thank you so much for this beautiful, rich picture of what it looks like to to take our seat with those from all over the all over the world, Lord, for the, from the four corners of the globe, to to sit and eat and celebrate our King, um, you, Lord Jesus. So, yeah, what a beautiful truth, God, and help us to just continue to reflect upon these truths as we make our way through the rest of the service, Lord, and as we as we share the the meal together after the service? Would it be, in a small way, um, a foretaste of what, what we're gonna look forward to in heaven? See, I pray all these things in your name, Father. Amen.